0: This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prati will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is January 8th. We are, so far, the market's kind of been on a downward spiral this year. Um, I mean, we had a lot of sugar rush, obviously, at the end of 2023, and I think we're seeing some of the effects of that. As of now, we're seeing the 10-year sit at 3.97. Tim, let's kind of get into it. What's happened to the market so far this year?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, the most interesting thing was, I mean, you're right, we got kind of crazy overbought towards the end of the year. We've had a sell-off here at the beginning of the year. You know, the, as I've been saying, this has been for a long time a one-factor market and that one factor being the 10-year. So, you know, you saw the 10-year trade, what, what did the 10-year got below 380? And mm-hmm. now it's bounced back up above four, now it's kind of back below four again today and all of a sudden, lo and behold, guess what? Uh, the s and up today despite Boeing being down 8%, which is dragging the Dow, but everything else is back up today. Um, and you've had you know you've had kind of data for every bias, right? You've had data that that makes you feel like, all right, things are going to be fine on the in- employment front, right? You got a pretty good non-farm payroll headline number. However, you got a really negative household number. So the establishment survey was a lot of jobs, only a hundred and so uh, in the private sector, but you had a household uh, survey which showed shedding jobs we are shedding full-time jobs, there's no two ways about it. And what you saw on Friday is I wrote a little quick note that said, look, this number looks a little bit too hot. And then at 10 o'clock, you got a non-manufacturing ISM where the employment subcomponent was 43. Now, every guy who's a macro guy, economist type, looks at the non-ISM manufacturing and tends to dismiss it. But on Friday, everybody was like, holy moly, because it was a big number. It was a really negative number, that 43, 50 being in that Mendoza line between expansion and contraction, a 43 is pretty weak. Look, the trend of employment, when you put all the numbers together, is getting weaker. The number that's crazy to me is the, uh, the layoffs number on the weekly jobless claims. Like you just, I mean, those weekly jobless names is a dead man at 200. Like it just doesn't, lift up, and it's it's really incredible. You got some lift in continuing claims, it just feels like hiring is pretty soft, but firings is also really low, but the overall trend is slowing. You have some contraction in corporate profitability. That's what drives employment lower. If, if corporate profitability continues to contract, and it is slowly contracting, remember, we didn't have any earnings growth last year, right? And if that trend continues, you should see some more contraction in employment. I'm somebody who believes that housing is everything. Housing is what is gonna drive this uh, economy, Uh, and housing's pretty strong. And with this real softening of financial conditions because of the 10-year coming in, and because mortgage rates coming back in, I don't really see what makes employment fall off a cliff. So I'm kind of in this, I don't know if it's higher for longer but more kind of sideways for longer camp where um, the economy stays kind of good enough. I think the right number in terms of what real growth looks like is probably closer to the GDI than the GDP. The GDI though gets reported later than the GDP. So nobody gives a damn what the GDI print is because you've already gotten this GDP print. Um, but if you look at kind of the mix of those things, we're kind of bumping along at maybe one percent type two, one percent. I was going to say two, but I think the average of GDP and GDI now is going to come in closer to one, and I think we kind of bump along at that level. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm kind of in this camp that it's not Goldilocks in the sense that it's not really too hot and it's not really too cold, but it might taste like shit. You know, mm-hmm. like it just. <laughs> right, right. You know, like we're gonna kind of bump along, and I think with very little uh, corporate profit growth, but probably enough of an okay jobs picture and an okay profits picture that you don't see a big contraction in employment, and therefore you don't see a, a, a deep recession. And we'll see, we'll see.
0: And that's more or less kind of what, you know, Richmond Federal Reserve President Thomas Barkin alluded to on Wednesday, right? That there's consensus is definitely at this point a soft landing, Um, and know, progress has been made on inflation, but growth is starting to slow down a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, 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 you know, we have cyclically slowing inflation and I I, I say this all the time because I feel like, um, the message gets lost a little bit, but there is a big difference between cyclical inflation coming down. We had 30% consumption growth that we're coming off of. We're coming off of double digit nominal GDP growth, right? That is slowly falling. We are getting through all the COVID related supply chain issues. So with all that, you have this cyclically falling inflation. However, there are real reasons to believe that we have a secular inflation problem One of the things that I always point to with secular inflation is this concept of the end of Pax Americana, the end of neoliberalism, right? You're seeing shipping rates move higher. You're seeing tariffs move higher. So my belief is that as we get through this cyclical slowdown, you are going to be left with some level of goods inflation as a result of tariffs, as as a result of higher shipping rates. Um, and, and, you know, I, I just I, I think that the the, econ- the economy and, and pundits are sort of sleeping on that. My fear is that we have a very slow growth economy, a flat growth economy, but one that once we get through these base effects uh, is gonna show some inflationary pressures, and that's not gonna be great uh, for long-term asset prices. You
0: know, um, in terms of the Jolt survey, demand for workers to offer is lowest in more than two and a half years. Um, more to, you know, what you were saying about ISMs in terms of the manufacturing components, openings fell, rate of vacancies as a measure of employment was more or less unchanged. Um, you know, in terms of sectors, where do you think most of that's going to fall? Like, is manufacturing the first to kind of soften and, and construction, of course, or, or, you know, where do we see some of this happening?
1: I mean, the wild thing And you know, the reason why the LEI has been so bad is because the LEI looks at a lot of those ISM components. ISM has been negative, the manufacturing ISM now, has been negative for 14 months in a row. So like, you already don't have real meaningful job growth in manufacturing. You do what you do still have though, are the remnants of all that fiscal impulse, right? We're running $2 trillion deficits. $2 trillion deficits in the long term is a problem. But in the near term, it's still stimulative, and in the near term, you still have huge growth uh, in the uh, construction and manufacturing facilities, driven by chips, driven by the IRA, the RIA, uh, and that is kind of offsetting a lot of that. The, the, what you know, what was intended to be some monetary tightening, but with this big move down in the ten-year, you have fi- f- uh, fiscal conditions loosening. So, you have all of these offsetting factors that kind of get us to, you know, and I'm repeating myself now, but this kind of sideways situation in terms of both growth and I think inflation as well will be flattening out here at higher levels. Everybody wants to really focus on OER, owner's equivalent rent, lagging new rents. Everybody believes that as new rents come down, OER will converge on that. I'm not so sure that's the case. There is uh, a lot of confusion, I think, in the understanding of those microeconomics of how OER and CPI uh, rent uh, housing inflation is calculated.
0: So, you know, last year, I'd say there's three sectors in particular, industrials, healthcare, and financials that really underperformed the market. Um, what do you think these sectors are going to look like in 2024? I know last week we talked to Brad, you know at Fidelity about this a little bit, but um yeah, I mean, what are we seeing so far in, in those three sectors in particular?
1: we were talking healthcare, financials, and what was the third one, Drew?
0: Industrials.
1: Industrials. So um, start with healthcare. Look, it, to the degree that uh, we have a softer-looking economy and there is more of a defensive rotation, you got to think healthcare does pretty well. Uh, the biotechs have been on their ass now for a couple of years, right? You've had you've had no real um, uh, you had a little bit of a pop at the end of last year with that whole short squeeze that happened in markets, and I think it's the IBB, the the biotech index, really popped. And remember, you know, as the lilies of the world have tremendous amount of cash flow, the way that they grow is buying small healthcare companies, buying right. biotechs. So, I, I don't see why you wouldn't see um, uh, more M&A in healthcare as biotechs have gotten cheaper and the big drug companies have more cash. I mean, I think that that's a pretty straightforward idea. Uh, on financials, I think you continue to see uh, the big boys take share. And as we approach Q1 earnings, I don't think there's any reason to believe why you know, J.P. Morgan and Citi and and Wells and the big boys that get started with the earnings season won't continue to put up good numbers, uh, and 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 the and the regionals will suffer a little bit more. The regionals will still have to digest more difficult credit conditions uh, and some deposit flight, uh, and still dealing with an inverted yield curve. Uh, and then on on the industrial side, look, I'm not bullish on industrials. If if you believe that the global economy is slowing, as I do, order books are going down. Uh, I think that's the forward way to look at, um, at, at earnings growth, at potential earnings growth in the industrial sector. So I'm not terribly uh, positive on industrials overall. I, I think industrials' profitability continues to soften, uh, and that's just how you look at it. When order books start to weaken uh, and backlogs weaken, uh, eventually, that profitability uh, lags that uh, for industrial. So you have the early signs of what should be softer industrial earnings, in my opinion.
0: You'd think that healthcare, in light of the boon of weight loss drugs, would you know would have a sizable year. Um, so a lot of those developments came in the latter half of 2023. I feel like, but.
1: Yeah, all that cash that is sitting on the balance sheets of the, you know, the guys who produce these drugs, all these GLP-1 inhibitors, the the Wagovis and the Ozempics of the world, that cash is going to go to M&A. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. drug companies do. They don't, they, they, you know, they, they have small dividends, they have dividends, but not huge dividends. They do buybacks, but they don't do huge buybacks. The way that they grow is making acquisitions of, of small emerging biotechs. And that's why I would think that you should have a little bit of a better bid as that cash goes to M and A.
0: What do you think? Your thoughts about companies losing pricing power this year? Um, you know, FedEx last week said customers have shied away from speeder and pricier shipping outlets. You've seen some airlines like Southwest discount. Um, yeah, I mean, what what are, what are your thoughts on that? You know,
1: we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I you know. Um, you gotta take pricing, right? I was talking to a buddy of mine who runs a supermarket chain, uh, and I said, aren't the CPG companies gonna continue to take price mix, right? They might sacrifice a little bit on volumes, but you've gotta take a little bit of price mix. I used to be a Staples analyst, and it is very, very rare that the overall consumer packaged goods sector isn't taking price. Uh, And even after all the years of pricing that they've been taking, I think they're still gonna wanna try to take some pricing. I just feel like the world has changed, uh, that it's become, you know, as you know, I talk about that Thomas Philippon book, this idea that we've had so much M&A and we've had so much less competition. Look at Coke and Pepsi, right? Mm-hmm. The history of Coke and Pepsi is battles over volume. Not so much anymore. Now they both take a hell of a lot of pricing uh, and and so, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think it'll take a pretty weak economy. I think it'll take a real recession for companies to have to resort to focusing on not losing volume growth and really getting more aggressive on uh, on pulling back pricing in order to protect market shares. Uh but I, I don't see this sharp contraction in the in the loss of pricing power unless we have a recession. And then if we do have that recession, you get weaker pricing power, and in turn, you will have really meaningful disinflation and even deflation. And as I say, I want to, I know I repeat myself here, but my call is not that we won't have near-term cyclical disinflation and deflation. My call is that there is a long-term trend that pressures uh, inflation.
0: You know, in, in terms of oil in particular, yeah, I mean, we saw that jump 3% on Wednesday. There was a disruption at a Libyan oil field. Recently, we've seen the Israelis talk about how they're going to unwind operations in Gaza. But at the same time, uh, Lebanon is really popping off, right? So um, in a way in which Netanyahu has more or less threatened Hezbollah and and, and we might see continued operations in southern Lebanon. Um, which, you know, is so, it's more of a precarious situation. Now, we've seemed to expand to two fronts as opposed to one. Um, Yeah. you know, what are your thoughts? Like, we'll see. I mean, I remember when Syria had their civil war, all those price spikes were temporary, but we just, looking at the situation, it's going to be tough to gauge.
1: Yeah, when you look at overproduction, when you look at what the bullish oil analysts got wrong in 2023, to some degree it was Permian, a little bit of Permian overproduction. To some degree it was a little bit of higher than expected production out of even the Bakken and out of the uh, out of the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. But the big overproduction is Iran, right? Hezbollah, Hamas, these are uh, the Houthi rebels. These are all Iranian proxies. Uh, so the surprise to me and a lot of people was that there wasn't greater enforcement of uh, these price caps. Uh, for the Iranians, the Venezuelans, the Russians. Uh, If there is a two-front war uh, in the north uh, and Hezbollah really gets hot between Lebanon and Beirut and and Israel, you got to think that NATO, the United States, gets more aggressive around Iran. And you even have to think that Israel strikes Iran directly. Uh, So, you know... I'm surprised, look, as we sit here talking today, which is, what is it, Monday the 8th, um, oil's down like 4%, despite the fact that nobody's willing to take their, you know, Maersk and all these other shipping companies aren't traveling through the Red Sea. Yeah. Uh, so that, it surprises me. It, it There is this uh, this overwhelming bearishness on oil, and it happens, right? I mean, guys were bullish all of 2023, they got their asses kicked. Now they're a little nervous to uh, to get out there and make uh, long bets on oil. Uh, it's like two days of peace and everybody's like, okay, not gonna be a problem. Right. I agree with you. I mean, I, I, mean I, I just, one of the things that I think that we're all sleeping on is cheap drone technology, right? Uh, cheap drones allow the Houthis and the Iranians, the Hezbollah to create a real problem. Uh, with the Red Sea, the Suez Canal, shipping lanes—you know—we haven't seen it yet. But what if some of these? What if there's a meaningful drone attack on some tankers uh, in 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 uh, in the Red Sea, or even outside of the Red Sea? You know, it's it's not like Iran is completely limited to just that area. So, you know, I think that is another potential inflationary spot uh, for oil. I still like oil. I I have enough experience and enough humility to know that I don't know what oil is going to do long-term. You know, our thesis on oil is that long-term, despite EV technologies, uh, when Americans consume 20 barrels of oil a year in emerging markets, there are billions of people in this world who essentially consume none. When, as the, as more and more of those people ascend into the global middle class and they use a moped and they use heating oil or they buy a car they're using air conditioning, uh, that changes the dynamic for demand long term. So I think that there is this inexorable uh, rise in demand on oil. But in the short term, I do think there's risk. I do think there's complacency. Uh, around what could happen from a geopolitical standpoint. And, and and you're right, it does seem like nobody's worried about Hezbollah, nobody's worried about a two-front war. I don't understand why they aren't.
0: Mm-hmm. No, yeah, especially, I mean, obviously some of, there was the assassination uh, of a Hamas operative in Lebanon, um, and a lot of them are domiciled in, in, in Lebanon as well. So, um, So, yes, as much as it's a front against Hezbollah, uh, you know, Hamas has got has got stuff in in Lebanon as well, which which makes it seem like it's a natural precursor. I mean, you look at what the Israelis did after the Munich massacre um, and, you know, they were going everywhere, anywhere and everywhere in which these operatives lived. You know, Netherlands, you have it. So I'd be surprised if they don't do the same thing in light of what happened on October the 7th. But And,
1: and, you know. In a weird way, um, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranians, they're kind of winning the global PR war, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I think it's the lead story in the New York Times today that, you know, Israel risks the u s. relationship because it is getting more difficult for American politicians um, even you know, despite the the iron, the iron. Uh, the iron friendship, or whatever the the terms are that are used, that there's never any space between the U.S. Uh, and Israel, right or wrong, I'm not. I have no opinion on it. You know, we can always go back to just how incredibly horrible the attack, uh, the Hamas attack in southern Israel was. People should never forget it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but regardless of that, they're losing the P.R. war. They just, they simply are. Uh, and and why wouldn't that uh, encourage Hezbollah? to expand the war, because you know what's gonna happen. You know Israel's coming at you with two guns blazing. You know that the most militaristic, the most aggressive uh, leadership that exists in Israel is in control, Uh, and they are going to be really aggressive, and that is gonna continue, I think, from a PR standpoint, a global relations standpoint, hurt them, right? So, so like, look at what is Iran's motivations? They want to hurt Israel. They want to hurt Israel's global standing, and they want higher oil prices. Keep expanding. Keep expanding the war.
0: Yeah, I mean, and not only are kind of the most hardline in charge in Israel, but I think they might think this is their only political outlet. Um, The opposite of the September 11th rally around behind the flag has happened in Israel, right? So Bush at one point after September 11th had had approval ratings close to 90, you know, upper 80s. Uh, ah, is sitting at 20 to 25% approval. Uh, Israelis were sour on him before and now are increasingly sour, um, especially in light of the intel, like that they were sitting on intel that, and then, um, and then also just kind of looking back at how, in some ways you take down the PA and you support Hamas just because that weakens two states. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that's come to light on that front has made israelis frustrated with Netanyahu because it's kind of blown up on uh, you know in their face you know quite literally yeah.
1: yeah yeah but don't you think still though his support at home and his support within the power factions within israel isn't going anywhere right he he doesn't have internal political pressure to back off their aggressiveness i don't think
0: no and i and i don't think uh, israelis are i think they're the they're, they're in support of the war. It's more they're, they're angry at Netanyahu for the intel breach, for attacking uh, the military, you know, kind of blaming it all on them, which obviously isn't what leaders are really expected to do. So, I think some of those frustrations are more have to do with that rather than do you support a wider war within Gaza Strip, which, I mean, I think the answer is overwhelmingly yes, but. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And, and and it'll be beyond Gaza. I agree with you. I think it'll be in Lebanon. I think it'll be in Iran. And who knows? It's it's obviously in Yemen. It's in the Red Sea. And this is, I think there is greater and greater risk every day that this becomes a, a, a wider conflagration. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: just uh, one thing you were talking about, we were talking about EVs briefly, but did you see that Tesla lost their top spot uh, in 2023? The Chinese company, I forget CY, which is B Y D, yeah, yeah, B Y yeah, D, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Buffett's company.
1: I mean, you, yeah. you you look at it in terms of, you know, I'm amazed. You, you, there's there's a, there's a Wall Street Journal story. It's not the New York Times. This is the Wall Street Journal with a front page story in the Weekend Journal that Musk has a very serious drug problem.
0: Uh, I've seen this. Uh, yes, the non-disclosures and, and the islands and the ketamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It, it, you look, if you look at Tesla today. Stocks up yeah. like, you know, just the the I, I think it's I think it's the result of passive flows and that benefit mega market caps like Tesla. But I, I there is a culty following uh, of Tesla that just ignores the bad news. Uh, and look, Tesla is wildly reliant on China. And, you know, who needs who needs who more? Does she need t- does ne- she need Musk more? Or does Must need G more, and it's very clear to me, and should be clear to everybody, that Must need G a hell of a lot more. Uh, and you'll continue to see full self-driving uh, recalls in 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 China. And I just think that there is real real risk uh, to Tesla's market share, just like there's real risk to the iPhone in China, where you know CCP members cannot can no longer uh, use an iPhone. Like these kind of issues with China, these kind of issues, which all are part of less global cooperation, uh, these are not good for these mega mega cap companies. Uh, but you know, we're, the world seems to be, the investing world seems to be willing to ignore them until it really is in your face and it can't be ignored any further.
0: Yeah, um, you know, do you think we missed anything this week, Tim?
1: You know, I, I think the key thing is uh, just keeping an eye on uh, the overall employment trends because it really is a it really is uh, interesting to me um, that you know you do have this disinflationary trend, you do have a slowing growth trend, uh, and the question will be as we move into through the first quarter and through the second quarter of twenty twenty four. Does this trend where growth is holding up better than inflation? Does that does that flip? Do we end up in a trend where inflation starts to look a little bit more resilient, quote unquote, and growth starts to look a little bit more slippery? Uh, and if that's the case, I think you have a very different uh, outlook uh, for equities. Uh, uh, I continue, uh, and and then I think that when we look it's gonna be interesting to see what guidance looks like uh, as we get into earnings season. You know, as always, despite the fact that there was no real earnings growth in 2023, 75% of companies beat earnings. 75% of companies are around there will beat earnings again uh, for Q4, but what does the guidance look like for 2024? And, and I think some of the weakness that you are seeing in corporate profitability statistics uh, what you see out of the NFIB, the the small businesses who continue to say, look, we still got margin pressure because of employment and we have less pricing power, that suggests to me lower margins. So My thinking is that as we go through Q4 earnings, you're going to continue to see 2024 estimates get ratcheted down and then all of a sudden the market has to look at that and say, okay, we thought we were paying 18 times forward for 2024 earnings. Maybe we're paying 20 times forward and in a slower growth world with continued margin pressure, maybe that's not that great. And then the other side of it is, I, I wanna look and see if you have a real acceleration in housing demand as a result of, of the pullback in the 10 year. Uh, so I, I am very much kind of a, a little bit lukewarm here. In other words, I, I don't feel really strongly that we that we that we fall apart i really do feel like we there's enough factors here that kind of keep us going sideways but at a very low level in terms of growth and then that there are risks that you that there's a sense that inflation data starts to bottom out and then there's risk that it moves higher i stick with my argument that we'll have three or less cuts in 2024
0: Sounds good, Tim. Well, thanks for your time today. Uh, It's good to be back in 2024, first episode of Season 9. And for all our listeners and subscribers, thanks as well. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.